Hi and welcome to the Crime Pod. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Sam. So this week we are going back to the 90s and talking about a case that did not get enough public like attention. Yeah, sorry, attention at the time. There's reasons for that which I'll tell you, but I'm going to tell you the story of Lawrence Haggard. Samantha, have you heard of Lawrence Haggard's ring a bell or anything? No, no bells at all. Nothing. Not surprising. Yeah, but (laughs) fair. I actually had never heard of this one either until I was searching up something else and I actually found it. So, yes, here we go. So, obviously his name is Lawrence. So, Lawrence Haggard was a 15-year-old boy and he lived in Larbert, which is in the Falkirk Council area. So it's a small town in Scotland. Like I had a look and obviously came up with a population, but the population was like 11,000, but that was 2016. So we're going back to the 90s for this. This all happens in 1996. You're thinking kind of 20 years before that. So it's not a big population at all. It's quite a small place. And he lives in a large estate. Now he lives with his two brothers, who is 17-year-old John. I've actually wrote a complete wrong name. Oh, Jack. Oh, two seconds. John, yes, it is John. I've wrote the mum's name. It's not the mum. Um, his brother and his mum. I know, John? I was like 17 year old Janet. I was like, what the fuck? Anyway, sorry. He lives with his two, <laughs> he lives with his two brothers, which is 17 year old John and 12 year old Dennis. And he lives with his mum, Janet, but he does see his dad. His parents split in 1993, so his dad is called Larry. And he lives quite nearby. He lives in a place called like Dunny Pace, I think it is. And he works there as a painter. So I think that's not far away. And they see each other quite often. Now, Lawrence is known and why this case is actually as known is because he was a huge fan of football. And his dad actually pay, uh, played for semi-professional Aloha, Aloha Athletics. God, sorry. Aloha Athletic. Um, so Lawrence was very, very Are good at football. Okay? Yes, I'm fine. I don't know what happened there. Sorry. Uh, Lawrence was very good at football. And he actually played for Scotland's international under-16 squad. But in Scotland, there's a thing where, like, professional clubs will go to school and sign, like, schoolboy contracts. So they get boys from, like, 9 to 15 and they choose to, like, put them through special training to then go on and, like, potentially play for the club and be signed professionally. And in 1995, this actually happened for Lawrence with Celtic Football Club. Now, if you're from Scotland, you'll know who Celtic Football Club are. And even if you're not from Scotland, they're a huge team through the West. And his great uncle actually played for them and he had supported Celtic all his life. So this was an like, amazing thing for him. And he was actually lined up to sign his professional forms in the December of 1996. And everyone that like I read and stuff had said he was going to have an amazing football career. He was very, very talented footballer. Now, this all starts to happen on Friday the, Friday the 15th of March, 1996. Now, Lawrence went out that night. He went to a place called Ziggy's, which is an underage club in Denny. But he had a curfew. So he left before 10 and actually went home in a taxi. Now, he got out in the village called Camelin and someone saw him near the Falkirk Sheriff Court and he walked the last two miles home. Now, he got home about half 10 and the oldest John was still in, but Dennis had not got home yet. That just to note, the mum isn't there, so Janet had actually gone out. Very rarely she goes out, so she's gone out for a friend's birthday. So John is kind of in charge of everyone, and Dennis just got in a little bit after Lawrence. Now, this was after his arranged curfew, but at least he is home. 
So they all kind of go to bed and then uh, John, sorry, hears kind of some ruffling throughout the night and Lawrence seems to take his duvet down to the sofa and sleeps there. Now it's actually the morning of the 16th of March, about 1am 1, 1 and John wakes up to a smell of burning and looks up and his room is actually full of smoke. He goes down the stairs and tries to find the trace of the fire which is in the living room and he finds Lawrence on the floor in the living room next to a fire and he's clearly been beaten up his face is marked you can see the mark on his shoulder and he's lying in his underwear now the fire is actually at the bottom of the feet of his feet sorry going up his feet and his legs and it seems like a pile of clothing that's been set on fire he was still breathing but this was very very weak so john went and got a bucket of cold water to put the fire out he goes up the stairs to get dennis for the room who is sound asleep but he wakes him up and just then Janet gets home and actually finds what is all going on. Now John manages to call the police and the police and ambulance obviously arrive within minutes and he is unresponsive but he is still alive. Now he goes on to life-saving surgery at the Western General Hospital which is about 30 miles away and it's in Edinburgh so the Western General Hospital I obviously was like oh that's a weird place to go but in the 90s that must have been where to go. He actually had brain damage and a massive skull fracture to the right of his face and head. And he was put on life support and his parents stayed with him and everything. It's about Sunday, like the whole way through to the 17th of March. Now, the attack obviously makes local news. His ID was still hidden. However, the Sunday Mail called him a rising Celtic star because he was. And some people kind of identified him from that. But the reason they didn't name, his, name him is not all his family and friends were aware yet. Now, unfortunately, his parents were told that he wouldn't pull through, so they turned off his life support. At age 15, he passed away in hospital. Now, as you can imagine, the football community were really shocked by this, and the Celtic manager at the time, Tommy Burns, made a statement about this, saying like how shocking it was and his coach for Scotland, etc. Now, they have the autopsy, and they couldn't actually determine how many times he was hit due to the fact he'd had extensive surgery on his head, so they can't tell how bad that was. It was extremely violent, though. Um, it was carried out with a heavy object, and they said he actually had similar head injuries to someone being thrown through a car windscreen in a car accident, which you can imagine, that's horrendous injuries. And for that to be inflicted by somebody was definitely not just a fight gone wrong. Now, his legs and feet actually had third-degree burns, and his feet, like the sole of his feet, were actually charred black. It had no defensive wounds or fighting wounds, so it shows that he was kind of attacked while unaware and he'd also had the numbers 110 carved into his shoulder and they think that was done with a key and he actually had it on the palms of his hands with ink as well so I don't know what that means and I'm just going to like tell you now we never find out what that means nobody really knows what that means at all um so the police start getting involved of course and start the investigation now when I started was like looking into this, I was wondering why there wasn't a lot of like information about it or why the police like why this didn't blow up. Do you know? Like I couldn't really get my head around the fact that this has happened and this isn't something I knew, even though it was years ago. And even when I said to like my mum, my mum didn't have any idea who he was, and I was really confused by that because I thought, you know, a fifteen-year-old boy being burnt alive in his house basically is such a huge thing. Like I don't understand how that didn't come about. However police resources were limited due to an event that had happened the week before. Now, this happened in the early hours of the Saturday morning and on the Wednesday, which had been the 13th of March 1996, was when the Dunblane Massacre took place. Now, 
for anyone that doesn't know what I'm talking about, I'm sure if you're from Scotland, you will 100% know what I'm talking about. But basically on the 13th of March 1996, Thomas Hamilton was his name, went into the school in Dumbling Primary and shot dead 16 pupils and their teacher in the gym hall. Now, this was a huge, huge thing in Scotland. And obviously at that time, the police were never cut out for that people like that kind of crime. So basically they only got, Lawrence's case only got, the police from central Scotland, which covers like Falkirk, Stirling and Clackmannanshire, which is a huge case for just that kind of um, force. Now, it was led by Detective Superintendent Jim Winnie and his second in command was Detective Inspector John Bunyan, I think his name was. Now, there's no sign of force entry. So that's what the first thing they notice is John said that the brother said when he went down the stairs, the front door was actually kind of open. So police believe it was either someone who knocked and got in or it was someone who was already in the house. Now, when they did the initial search as well, they'd found no weapon. So they're assuming the weapon's either been dropped or the person that came and done it has left with the weapon. Now, the police obviously look at the house and they go in with the forensic, sci forensic scientist and the fire brigade. Now, the fire brigade said that the fire that was on Lawrence's feet was made from a pile of clothes. It was made from shirts, jeans and boots, which have a similar description to what he was wearing that night. So... Obviously, one of the things, like one of the big questions was, was this a sexually motivated crime? Because he was found just in his boxers, but it could actually be that they have taken his clothes off to start the fire. Like that, I don't know either way, but that's just like a thought. Now, it seems that he was actually dragged there and then lit. So there doesn't seem to be any trace either of an accelerant lying around the house. Um, also, there was a burn, like the couch nearby was on fire as well. And that's where his duvet was. So I think, and so do the police think that the arsonist was hoping the whole house would go up and it would just look like he died tragically in a fire rather than his body being found in the state it was. Now, obviously the police are thinking of a motive and they couldn't find any motive. He was a well-liked boy. He was doing great in football. He had loads of good friends. He was liked by his neighbours. So nobody can think of anything to do with Lawrence that would make someone want to kill him. Now, rumours started spreading really early on. It was actually due to the fact he supported Celtic, as Celtic Football Club obviously have their historic associations with the Irish descent and obviously the Catholic Church. Now, this is a very common thing that crimes happen, especially with like Celtic Rangers, etc., with different crimes. But it's a bit much to kill a 15-year-old boy who hasn't even professionally signed for the club yet. Do you know what I mean? So is it against anti-Catholics as well? Well, it was quite a Catholic area. And also, again, why him? Why why just him, do you know? But but on March the 19th, this was completely dismissed, saying they had absolutely nothing to prove that it was an attack on him supporting Celtic. Now, Janet and the other two sons had to go and stay somewhere else, but for them, that was actually fine, as Janet didn't want to go back to the house. And on Friday the 22nd of March, Robert Beveridge, one of the detectives, went in to get clothes for them. He was a detective sergeant, sorry. And while he was in the kitchen, he actually found a hammer lying on the kitchen table. So he bagged it and took it in as he thought this could actually be the murder weapon. Now, on the 20th of April was the funeral. So there was about 500 mourners and this took place in Stirling. And the whole of the Celtic first team actually went in their green and black training tracksuits, along with the Celtic youth teams and actually the big bosses of Celtic at that time as well, which shows you know, a lot of support from the football community there. The police put up an £1,000 reward for information on the killer. But nobody came forward. And as far as I can find, they didn't have anything. So you're talking no witnesses, no sightings, no one being suspicious, which obviously you can imagine the police saying, like, how is there nobody? 
So this is when the investigators start becoming convinced that it was someone inside the house that night. Now, I was thinking, oh, okay, they're going to start blaming the older brother. But I was wrong. They start to look at the younger brother, Dennis, who was 12 at the time. But he was said to be quite big for his age. And people had said, you know, if, if they were going to fight, he would be able to, like, take on both him, like both brothers, really. Um, he was questioned by police and people said that it was because he was jealous of Lawrence's football career. And the theory that the police have is they, he confronted Lawrence about it that night and they got into a bit of an argument and he ended up bludgeoning his brother to death, basically. Now, he was questioned by yeah, both the two... Yeah, but you wouldn't do that just over the yeah. football career. Yeah. No, absolutely. Sibling. Also, like, what a way to do it. Like, totally yeah. understand if he was hit once and, like, hit his head and it was a complete freak accident, but you're not going to, like, basically set your sibling on Bludgeon fire. Today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Completely. And then, um, if you were to set him on fire, you wouldn't go back upstairs and go to sleep. No, like, exactly. You wouldn't then go to bed for the other brother to find as there's a fire downstairs. Yeah. It's just, yeah, that's not happening. Not at all. Um, he was questioned by the two lead detectives and he said he wasn't envious at all. He was proud of his brother. John was also interviewed and he denied anything, like any conflict between the two of them that evening at all. Now, two weeks later, John actually changes his mind about this and he told police that Dennis and Lawrence had actually heard an argument that night about curfews. As I'd said, Dennis was late for his curfew and Lawrence pulled him up for this and this ended up with Dennis telling them to fuck off and going upstairs. Now, they shared a room, Lawrence and Dennis, which is why I think Lawrence was down the stairs, because I think he went upstairs, the argument continued, so he just took his duvet and was like, I'm sleeping down the stairs. As John heard them bickering again, but then he thought he heard Dennis go down the stairs, like going to the kitchen and come back up to bed. Police then believed because of this, they were right to suspect him. And over months, they were interviewed. Now, police actually spoke to the dad, Larry, and they actually said, look, we've got enough to like, prove that Dennis is guilty, so would you speak to him and get a confession? Which, of course, his dad said no, because his dad believes he's innocent as well. Now, this lasted most of 1996, but the public were not made aware that the two brothers were under any suspicion whatsoever. Now, months passed with nothing. Like, the family are saying that they've heard nothing, really, unless the police come and take one of the brothers away for an interview. So, Towards the end of 1996 as well, Jim Winning was actually being replaced as head of the Criminal Investigation Division, so he wouldn't be in charge of this case anymore. So in charge was Superintendent John Holden, and his second was George Monroe. Now, of course, the anniversary comes around in 1997, and they have a memorial mass at his high school, and this is actually when he's featured on Crime Watch. Now, I've spoken about Crime Watch before. I love Crime Watch. I think it's so, so important. And his dad agreed, like, it was so great to get the story out there because still nobody came forward, even with a £1,000 thing. But unfortunately, absolutely no leads came from Crime Watch. Um, I think that really disappointed sort of the family. Like, I can't imagine it going out there. Obviously, that must have really got their hopes up because Crime Watch, as I've always said, it's amazing. But it's amazing because it does help cases like this but unfortunately it didn't in Lawrence's case and this only strengthens the police the police's argument for believing that it was someone inside the house now basically the Haggart family as I'd said earlier said they never really heard from police unless one of them came up to interview the boys so they decided to obviously speak to the police about this and this changed and the police said they would be in touch every week and they did they started getting like weekly updates now, the police actually get someone involved, a criminal psychologist called Adrian West, and he's actually brought in to interview 
both the Haggart brothers and after his interview he actually concludes that there was no way either of them had killed the brother that he was just like nah there was no way they could have done it which obviously the police aren't too chuffed about that as it's kind of against what they're saying and I think obviously they didn't admit it but I think the reason the police maybe brought him in was for him to say yeah like they're really really guilty but nah he said nope he really didn't believe that each of those boys could have committed such a barbaric kind of killing on their brother which Sam that's what we've kind of spoke about like yeah you can you hear about family members killing each other but for a 12 year old or even a 17 year old boy to commit a crime this bad on your own family would take a lot now other suspects were named in the official investigation so they started um re-examining them and that one of them was Brian Beatty now Brian Beatty um, is a convicted sex offender and he's from Ayr in Falkirk and schooling wise he actually went a lot like a lot of schools ran by like social work so he got moved around into these schools quite a lot for his behaviour um, his parents split due to his mum having an affair and due to this affair they moved to England and Brian actually went with her he basically I think his mum was a bus driver I could be wrong I've got that written but I can't remember where I read that he his mum was a bus driver and I think he went on these routes with her or was on the bus routes and he basically studied like old people's like travel patterns and would find out when they were out their houses and he would go to their houses when they were out and rob them. Now what he would do as well is after he'd robbed some of the houses he would set fires in the houses. So he was arrested for the first time in 1984 and charged with four counts of burglary and two counts of arson. When he is held in custody, he actually sets his cell on fire, his cell on fire, not his cell as in himself, his cell, but he also tries to commit suicide by setting himself on fire as well. So this guy loves lighting fires and he's really, like, you know, he's done it so many times. Um, the judge sentenced him to seven years, but he actually gets out on parole in 1988 and he moves back to Scotland. I don't know if that is with his mum or without his mum, but I do know that he moves back to Scotland then. Um, in the November, he basically would study houses in Scotland. Like, he would go into different neighbourhoods near where he lived in Ayr and, like, study the houses to find which houses had, like, adolescent boys living in them. So, like, kind of early teens, late teen-year-old boys. And what he would do is, at evening, would go in and basically try to assault them. In 1990, he'd done this in Falkirk and he attacked a 17-year-old by pushing scissors up to his stomach. He then sexually assaulted him and ran away and he was never able to see who it was. Um, he'd done this again to a 21-year-old, but the victim actually managed to push him off and, like, chased him out the house. And you think, like, being caught, like, do you know, he managed to rob all these elderly people and obviously he was caught but never, like, in the act. But you think being caught in the act would stop him, like, it didn't at all. Um, he kept doing this and in 1990 he went to Larbert where Lawrence lived and threatened an 18 year old and he actually sexually assaulted him as well and again in Lar Larbert he'd done the same with a 14 year old. Now he was obviously arrested of this eventually but they released him on bail which I I'm like okay that's fine like to be like certain people to be released on bail but like he has been going into people's houses so I don't know if this was bail with conditions to like be checked in or watched or whatever but he's released on bail and he went to the Edinburgh High Court and was sentenced to 18 months in prison but actually got out on parole in eight months which is mental like I think 18 months is such a short time as it is 
but to then get out on parole for maybe what good behaviour or something eight months in is mental so I wish I could say that he got out and it was actually because he was reformed he wasn't three days later he was seen in a residential street and he entered a house and went to a 16 year old boy's bedroom now he decided he wanted more time really with this one so he didn't want to like be caught he didn't want to like have to run from the house he didn't want to like have to keep quiet so he actually kidnaps this young boy and actually takes him out of the house by like covering his face so he can't see who he is um however as he's gone the boys managed to get the cover off his head and he sees who he is and bd fled he's caught again for this the boy obviously goes to the police and he's caught again and this time he's sentenced to five years however he gets out early again and he actually gets out in september 1994 and he lived in edinburgh for a few months but then he goes and lives in the falkirk area now, he was questioned the day after Lawrence's murder by the police and he gave an alibi. He basically said that he was at his brother's house, his brother's house, sorry, till about 9.30. He then drove through to Edinburgh and parked in the grass market area. He then walked to Royal Terrace and was there from about 11pm for about an hour and a half. Now, this is apparently where a lot of gay males would meet to have sex, etc. So he met there with a man. He didn't get his name. They didn't exchange any details about each other. And they had oral sex. He then drove home by about 2am. Um, the police asked if he was near Lawrence's house. And he was like, no, no, I wasn't. And that was enough for the police. They didn't check anything else, which really surprised me. Like, I was really, really, like, quite taken aback by that. But no, they didn't check him out. Like, so... When it comes to the actual evidence that was kept, a lot of it wasn't, so they didn't really have any physical evidence. So what all they really had to work on, like this new case, was um, photos of the crime scene and a pubic hair that was taken from Lawrence's underwear. But when tested, it actually turned out the pubic hair was Lawrence's. So they didn't even have like a hair to like test on anybody to see if they could get a match from that. Now, back to BT, in 1996, he actually lived in a caravan um, a few miles away and he still lived there in 1997 and August the 22nd he was actually arrested at this caravan from a fire raising like thing he'd done in February but they obviously held him for questioning and when they were questioning the police took this opportunity to ask about the Lawrence murder. Now he said he had nothing to do with it but towards the end of one of the interviews he actually like broke down in tears and detective Joe Holden asked like is this you saying like you murdered him? To which he nodded. And again, he was like, can I ask if this is a yes? And he said yes. He said he wanted to speak to his brother about it first. So the police went and got his brother. But then he said to his brother, he was innocent. He didn't say anything. So the police obviously speak to him again. And he says he will confess, but under one condition that he's not recorded. So they decide to take notes instead of like an audio recording. And his story is that basically he was outside the Haggart family home on March the 16th, 1996. He like told them all about the neighbours having a party and like a taxi turned up for this neighbour's party. So that can like, he can say like I was there, I saw that. He goes up to the window and he sees Lawrence asleep on the sofa with his duvet and he goes in. And when he goes in, Lawrence gets up and they spoke about something, he can't remember what. And he hit Lawrence, who fell back on the sofa, and he basically just kept hitting him. He mentioned that Lawrence looked terrified, he had fear in his face, but he couldn't remember how many times he hit him, and he couldn't remember what with. He said he knew he used a weapon, because his hands the next day didn't have any injuries on them, but he doesn't know what he used, he thinks it was something in the house. He has no like memory of what happened next, he just remembers running away, and going to his caravan and sleeping. 
The next morning, he went to a lay-by near a motorway and basically burnt some clothes and buried some of Lawrence's clothing as well. He actually offered to take the officers to this location, but I don't think they took him up on that. Now, nothing is mentioned, I remember I said at the start, about the number in his shoulder and written on his hands. Nothing is mentioned about that. And I don't know if he is telling the truth and he can't remember or if maybe this is not what it seems kind of thing. I just thought it was a bit suspicious that wasn't mentioned and I don't know if the police asked about it. When asked why, this is one of the most mental reasons I've heard for someone doing something. He said he committed this crime because he was distraught about the Dumbly massacre, which I personally don't understand how somebody could be distraught about children getting killed so you go and kill another child. But that was his reason that he gave. He said he also felt bad about the brothers being accused and he actually wanted to come forward and say it was him so the brothers didn't get the blame and for the parents to be at peace. He also said he wanted to go to Lawrence's grave to say sorry, but he never did. So when he's given these notes, of course he refuses to sign them and he remained on remand for the fire raising charge. Now police searched his place and like the places where he buried stuff and they couldn't find anything, like nothing significant was found. Um, they did tell the family they were looking at someone they had a suspect but this wasn't released to the general public now Brian Beattie was actually charged on November the 7th 1997 aged 33 with murder and fire raising in the home of the Haggarts he pled not guilty now the trial began on April 1998 in the Edinburgh High Court John Haggart like cried while he was on the stand and basically talking about how he discovered his brother, everything like that. And he did admit, actually, that he withheld knowledge of his argument with Dennis because he didn't want the brother like getting in trouble for it, which makes total sense because I didn't believe it was a brother at all, but obviously being the last person to see him alive that people know and being in an argument doesn't look great. So I completely get why he hid that. Now, Dennis also took the stand. He's 14 now and he spoke about the fight a couple of weeks back um, that he had had with Lawrence and it ended up that Lawrence had like thrown a dart at him and it actually pierced the skin on his leg. And the defence tried to use that and saying that's why he killed him for revenge of like a fight weeks ago, which is bizarre. He also, they mentioned the football jealousy theory again and said that is why Dennis burnt his legs because he was so jealous he could play football and he couldn't, which I don't know if Dennis played football. I don't know if he like played football I honestly have no clue about that at all but they keep going back to that with Dennis and trying to pin it on him now detective Monroe mentioned the confession and basically the detective said uh, the defense sorry said it was all made up they said that they had beaten him when he was being questioned and said that they would put his nephews in care if he didn't confess and that they would make up that Brian was molesting his nephews so that's why he did it as he didn't want that to come out because that's not true um, now there's a witness actually for the prosecution and it's a neighbour um, in one of the caravans and he says that he hears Brian's car leave at about 10, 11 and then it was home by 1. So this rules out Brian's alibi because he said he was at his brother's and then away from like 9 and wasn't home till like 2 but his car's there between like 10, 11-ish and 1. Now Brian Beattie cried on the stand but and when they asked why he was crying it wasn't because he was sorry anything he said he was crying because he was being accused of such an awful murder and didn't want to be accused of this. Um, the jury got a verdict the same day and of course Brian was found guilty of murder and fire raising. The court was actually burst into like cheers and applauds and everything when they read out the verdict. He was sentenced to life with a minimum of 15 years. 
Now, of course, Larry, the father, was really happy about this, happy it was done, but he was angry it took so long and he accused police for not, like, ruling the brothers out properly and for blaming them. He said that's why it took so long and the police actually, like, say, like, yeah, you're you're right, actually, and do, like, a public apology and both Dennis and John are awarded £20,000 compensation. However, the dad said that wasn't enough and that the officers involved should be losing their jobs. Now, this isn't the end of it. In mid-1998, an independent inquiry happened to see basically what went wrong and what happened in the initial investigation. And this was uh, led by Assistant Chief Constable James Mackay for the Tayside Police. Now, the findings were published three months later called the Mackay Report, but this was withheld from public. But uh, journalist Russell Finlay was his name, who had covered the case from the start via the Daily Mail, was intrigued at why this wasn't made public. He was like wondering, well... If you've done an inquiry and then the findings are being held public, then you're definitely hiding something. Now, seven years later, in 2005, in the United Kingdom, the Tony, uh, Tony Blair, our Prime Minister at the time, um, passed the 2005 Freedom of Information Act. Now, I didn't know what that was, so I'll read its definition to you. So, the Freedom of Information Act provides public access to information held by public authorities. It does this in two ways. Public authorities are obliged to publish separate information about their activities and members of the public are entitled to request information from public authorities. So then he went through the dad, Larry, and asked to request a copy on his behalf and they got a a copy, sorry, and Russell Finlay goes through this. So in 1996, BC was living in the Falkirk community. And as I said, he was questioned about the case, but no alibi was checked at all. And I don't think they checked his past um, criminal record, which if they had, they would have seen the multiple charges for sexual crimes. And remember, the police thought it was a sexually motivated crime at the start because he had no clothes on. Now, two officers actually searched BT's, uh, BD's home sorry, um, way back in the first investigation and they found both a hammer and like a petrol can but they didn't think that was suspicious at all there was a green piece of metal found in the haggard home and this was bagged but it was actually never logged and this went missing so they don't know what that was they don't know at the time that was even considered to be the murder weapon and i know what you're thinking oh the hammer was the murder weapon well basically an officer inspected the property with a team of experts two days after the murder right and no one found this hammer Bear in mind, right after the murder, um, like the fire, the fire investigation team went out and there was 90 minutes of searching this room for fingerprints, footprints, etc. They didn't find the hammer either. But then days later, Sergeant Beveridge goes on his own and finds this hammer. Nah, he planted it himself. So Mackay basically said this and said it was a corrupt and intended plan to pin it on Dennis. Now, sections of this report weren't actually released and I think this was to do with officers' involvement. But yeah, they weren't released. Another thing as well, which I think is horrendous, is the police made fake diary entries. And the reason that the report was able to clear, like prove they were fake is because they were referring to Lawrence as the deceased before he had died. Remember, he was in intensive care. He didn't die at the scene. And it was day, like from day to the day it happened, the deceased. But he wasn't dead. So the case's second in command, John Bunyan, was suspended in August 1998. And he was charged with two counts of, counts of discreditable conduct and three charges of neglect of duty. And the three charges were dropped uh, through a massive disciplinary hearing kind of thing. And he was found guilty of the discre- uh, discre- discreditable conduct. I can't get that out. Um, Beveridge, who planted the hammer, was transferred out of that department and eventually retired from the force. And loads of other did, um, others did that were involved. Just with reasons like, oh, just getting a bit older or just like 
oh yeah, like time to move on. And other officers were like trying to stop them, retire them because they knew they would get away with what they did. Now, regards to Brian, in 2003, he lost his appeal and he was denied parole in 2012. And unfortunately, what was no surprise, one of his nephews came forward in 2005 and said that their uncle Brian did actually molest them, which I find so interesting that he claims that's what the police like. <laughs> I've been thinking about this bit for a while, right? So this is what he said the police used to threaten him, which I personally don't believe at all. But why would he be so scared of that? But also, who came up with that? Like, was it his lawyer or did he say like, oh, yeah, this is what they did to maybe already plant that this was a lie do you know what I think that's so interesting I could think about that and talk about that bit for ages but yes his nephew came forward accusing him of molesting I am not surprised by that I think he is generally one of the most horrible people we've spoken about and I feel so so sorry for every single victim that he had not just Lawrence but all the boys that he molested for no reason and I think this is what's so shocking about this one is Lawrence didn't even know this person he met him as he killed him and I just think that's so hard to get my head around but yes, Samantha, what are your thoughts? Wow, that was crazy. Like, absolutely. I was just so engrossed in listening to you as well. Like, forget to put in my wee kind of two cents. But like, I guess it's also one of those things as well that this could have been prevented because of this man should have been in jail already. He should never have been walking the streets or out. And it's another thing to show that to be honest, our sentences aren't long enough. They're not harsh enough in some cases. Or when people do get out, they're not ever, you know, they're not looked at properly. They're not tracked. They're not on the right path, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And that's why when I said that, like, he was sentenced and got out on bail. Um, not bail, sorry, got out early release kind of thing. And then he does it again. So they put him back in jail and then let him out early release again. Like, it how are they not learning from this do you know mm-hmm. absolutely and I, I can't believe we've not heard of it but then at the same time I completely understand that Dumblane obviously overshadowed it for you know good reason completely like a one in a lifetime thing that happened here well do you um, know what I think it is like, yeah no of course but do I think it is as well like they said that this case was too much for the police force in that area which I completely get it. no one is prepared for like what happened to Lawrence but also Dumblane was the same yeah so like no one expected there to be a shooting in a school do you know so I think it was just that really tragic thing that there was these two horrendous crimes that like took up so much of the police's time and they both they just didn't really know what to do like I wonder if things would be different if this sounds horrible if Lawrence's was first yeah exactly like would that have made a huge difference I honestly like don't know but I think it's because the police were not prepared for either of those things which no one expected them to be and then they just didn't really they weren't able to manage their time well I think it was good reading that report the Mackay report full and seeing kind of where it went wrong and I think the bit that really got me was the forged diary entries because obviously they know they've done stuff wrong then and they know they've not done stuff right so they're like pretending they have which is like, you're better just to actually be honest there and be like, yeah, actually, we didn't look into this kind of thing or we could have done more. But I think the fact they went back and like pretended they did was just yeah. like really low. Yeah, 100% agree with you there. And then also the fact that, oh, the hammer could have been placed there and they were just trying to cover their tracks and it just makes them look a bit too much like corrupt because they're trying to cover up their mistakes. And it's it just would a complete so shame that it happened. If, 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Sorry, I keep spitting over you. It would have been so easy for them if it was Dennis. Do you know? Yeah. Like, when I was doing my research, at first, that's the only name that kind of kept coming up. So I was like, all right, okay. And it would have been easier for them. They wouldn't have had to look for a suspect. It was him, done. He probably wouldn't even got jail time because of his age. Like, that would have been such a easy, not much time needed kind of thing. But that's the thing, because it wasn't, that wasn't suiting them at the time, do you know? Yeah, exactly. And you can only hope that they've learned from it. And because it's so tragic and awful and you can only, they can only do better now, you know? No, absolutely. 